0: Back with another episode of Money and Taxes from BB to XYZ. I'm Regina Nina,
1: and I'm Jason Spessiner.
0: And on today's episode, we're focusing on investing. It's risky business.
1: You don't get something for nothing, so you've got to accept risk to earn a return.
0: And there are many levels of risk, or as Jason puts it, a spectrum.
1: And it's everywhere.
0: So we're going to relay those levels of risk so you can find the level of risk that's right for you and your investments, whether they're at the bank or in the market.
1: As long as they're not under the mattress, although, believe it or not, there's risks involved there, too.
0: Yeah. And Jason, as our director of investments, you deal with this literally every day, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, the the, the idea of a risk-free investment It kind of only focuses on the risk of loss, right? It doesn't consider or even give any kind of mention to the risk of purchasing power as an example, right? So as we deal with inflation and see inflation kind of raging right now, it's a real good lesson in the purchasing power risk of the quote unquote risk-free investment.
0: So before we dive in and really talk about risk in terms of the generations, can you just take like a really... Uh, Faraway view, ten thousand feet maybe, and explain risk in its most basic sense.
1: Yeah, so I mean, if you just think about what risk represents, it simply represents your ability to either preserve and or grow, right, your capital, and your money, right, over time, and so the spectrum of risk as I like to think of it, is you have your risk of loss at one end, right? And so when you think of your risk of loss, you think about like, what is the riskiest thing you can uh, do with money? Well, if you take it to Vegas, you put it on red, uh, one spin of the wheel, black pops up uh, uh, on the board and you've lost all that money. Um, that That's one side of kind of the riskiest thing. If you think of the safest thing you can do uh, with your dollars, the, the proverbial under the mattress or in a tin can in the backyard or in some bank vault, somewhere uh, uh, is perceived to be the safest uh, from a risk of loss standpoint. But this is where our spectrum of risk starts to come into play. It's simply that once you have eliminated a risk of loss, you've introduced uh, risk of of inflation, risk of purchasing power uh, uh, decreasing. right? And so it comes into a whole other place where if you're not balanced in your risk taking you end up with a very similar sort of thing where your loss at that point then just simply becomes you just don't have enough money or as much money to uh, acquire or purchase or spend the money on the things that you uh, either need or want to
0: so this is a super broad spectrum what are kind of the first steps someone can take to understand their place on it where they fall and where where they might be most comfortable
1: Usually, right? I mean, w- when you're thinking about this from a, uh, again, thirty thousand foot view, um, the first thing that probably comes up is time, right? I, I think that's a pretty, at least on the most basic level, kind of understood thing as far as like the more time you have, uh, you seem to have this correlation with, uh, oh, well, that's the more risk that that you can bear, and and certainly for a long term goal. Uh, for something like retirement, as an example, or something that's 10, 15, 20 years down the road, yes, you you have that sort of time component to it. The other part to this to understand is there are two parts to risk that that really come into play. There is at first your risk preference, right? How much risk you kind of want to take. And then there's the other side of this, something called risk capacity, which is simply how much risk can you take? So you got to combine not only your time element into this, but also think about circumstantially right? Uh, how, how much you earn, right? How much free cash flow you have, how many other assets, for example, or investments do you have where maybe if you have quite a bit, you know, of, of a surplus, for example, like maybe you can be more risky with a, with a certain segment of those dollars. And so that's usually the, 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 at least from the biggest, you know, broadest standpoint that the best place to start is that time factor and then evaluating that preference versus capacity.
0: Yeah. And then I I know that feelings can also come into it based on the day that you're making these choices. How do you get people to really step aside from their feelings in that day so that they can really focus on their preference and their capacity?
1: Right. I mean, in all personal finance, right, an element of emotion that comes into play and it affects everyone, right? I mean, you have to be very seasoned, very steady hand to kind of pull out the Emotional side. And so one of the ways to step back on emotion is just to try to take yourself almost out of your own circumstance, right? In a sense of thinking about this, if you were guiding someone else, right? So this is, this is what we do, right? As, as financial planners, financial advisors, like we provide guidance. And so it's very easy for us to be unemotional. Uh, with a client well, at the same time that individual right can employ the same sort of approach step out of this and what would you say that the next person if you were giving advice to somebody right a- in your circumstance like how would you how would you play that out and that's a good way to just sort of just tease out that emotional side of it tease out that hey, it was a bad day or the market sold off and so I'm really scared of uh, making this investment. And it helps you just kinda of have that almost that somewhat you know, empathetic approach in a sense, for, for your own self.
0: Absolutely. That's huge because, you know, you're not making investment decisions based on today. You're doing this for your future self, however many years that is down the road. Let's go ahead and switch gears. Let's talk about baby boomers. How can they best approach risk knowing that they don't have as much capacity because maybe they're in retirement, approaching retirement, um, and they don't have, you know, decades to keep their investments? invested basically.
1: Right. I mean, time horizon wise for somebody nearing that retirement age, right? Your first use of dollars is going to be obviously much sooner. Of course, you could be younger and still nearing that age, right? We've talked about setting and setting that retirement age and that doesn't have to be the typical 65. But Focusing when you are older and at this point starting to think about actually using those dollars, the one thing that's important from a time horizon standpoint, from a risk capacity standpoint, is that retirement or that day that you actually start spending down your assets, using them to supplement your income, is not the end, right? It's not the day that everything gets converted out of investments and into cash. It's the day where that process starts. And so, realistically, your risk tolerance, your risk preference, and your risk capacity—right, all the all three of those things. Tolerance and preference are pretty closely related. Capacity is, of course, the thing that that is just the the other factors involved. Those sorts of things, as you get closer, right, you should really start to broaden the perspective on them again. Start to think about what happens beyond that first day. And so, yeah, while you might start to see this sort of gradual decline in the amount of exposure to things that maybe move up and down a little bit more frequently on the investment side. It's not an all or none sort of proposition and it shouldn't be because there is a a lifetime of purchasing power that you will still need to account for once you hit that retirement or that longer dated goal.
0: For sure. And then you have the flip side of that where um, maybe some older baby boomers who are, you know, really well set. They have everything that they need to meet their, you know, daily, monthly, yearly goals for a while who have some pools of funds that are still in really risky investments because maybe they have some estate planning goals to pass that on to a future generation and that person's very young.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. You you can start kind of investing vicariously, right, from a risk management standpoint through your beneficiaries, and you see that often, right, where th- this fund is for for you know a grandchild or a niece or a nephew or you know somebody that's not necessarily in you know that that immediately next generation and has this very very long time frame. Even if it's for education, even if it's for something later in life, right, the timeframes all of a sudden get pushed out, and you end up with this sort of thing where you don't necessarily need to focus on your own sort of shorter term right, needs, you can really think about the next generation and even generations beyond.
0: Yeah, that's something that I know we really like to say is aligning your assets with your goals. And if your goals aren't for you, that's where that really comes in.
1: Right. Every every goal is going to be tied to a person in some way. If you think about this from a financial goal standpoint, you're usually going to have a person or a place, You know, maybe it's a charity, for example. But there is some element there as far as like, who is this for? And if you're getting into the legacy planning, if you're, you know, taking care of from your own income needs, you've worked that out and you understand that there is going to be a surplus, that risk tolerance, that risk preference, you can start to shift that into somebody else's shoes, essentially, at that point in time.
0: Can we take a quick step back and Jason, maybe tell us about how risk really translates into investing in stocks and bonds when it comes down to it?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just at the most basic level, stocks represent typically from a turnkey sort of how can I invest money? Stocks represent an easy way to do that and tend to be the more risky side of this equation. They tend to have the more ups and downs, more peaks and valleys, more potential for you know big, big rewards, more potential for big, big losses. The reason this happens It's very kind of basic sense is that what you have is ownership in something. You own a company, you're going to sort of benefit with its successes and you are going to be hurt by its failures. And so that's how stocks kind of come into play as far as the riskier side. Bonds, on the other hand, are more commonly associated with the kind of decrease in risk. Now, last year is a really good example where that doesn't always play out that way, right? I mean, we have a lot of factors that affect what happens with a bond price. There is typically either going to be a company or a government issuing this bond, and and it's a debt. It's just a promise to make a repayment in the future. And so the company or government's performance comes into play, but then also there's this other factor of interest rates. What happens with interest rates affects what happens to bond prices. And so as interest rates increase, bond prices tend to go down because you end up owning something that doesn't pay as much interest if you bought it, you know, a few days before the, the, the next one that has a higher rate of interest. So your price actually goes down. So. 2022, notwithstanding, like bonds tend to represent the lower risk side. It's it's a safer thing. It's a steadier cash flow. And then, of course, we can get into the other sort of areas from just an investment portfolio, like well, cash and shorter term bonds and that sort of thing. But at the very, very top level, stocks and bonds are the most common turnkey way to expose yourself to an appropriate amount of risk from both a tolerance and a and a capacity standpoint.
0: Yeah, this really brings up that idea of take 100 minus your age, and that's what percentage of stocks or bonds you should have. Do you happen to know that? Could you explain that?
1: The 100 minus your age. I've heard recently, you know, it's 110 minus your age. To be clear, these are these are very broad guidelines, not necessarily anything anyone should actually be acting on as like a a hard and fast rule. Um, because there's a lot that goes on, right? We just talked about the idea that there could be somebody else you're thinking about from a risk standpoint with a part of your investment portfolio. And is it 110 minus their age? Like, well, what is it? That's That's a good way to get an approximation based on simply age. And I think the kind of general expectation that you would retire at 65 or have some sort of later in life use of this money gives you a good sense of like, yeah, where should you be stock and bond wise? But again, it's not hard and fast. It doesn't work for everyone. It doesn't even necessarily provide a reasonable investment portfolio for everyone, but it's at least a place to start to think about what your exposure should be in in, in those areas.
0: Right. And it also doesn't take into consideration your distribution sequence and what pools of cash you can be a little more risky with and which ones you shouldn't. And I think this is a great place to really transition into our Gen Xers. Of course, the folks who are approaching an early retirement or who are already retired going to be pretty similar to baby boomers. But others who are following the more quote unquote uh, traditional retirement age, what are they going to be looking at as far as risk?
1: Well, these are high earning years. Gen Xers are, are in that phase where you're probably peak earning. So if you think about from a risk capacity standpoint, this is where you'll probably have more going into the proverbial pool than at any other point in your lifetime. If you've been saving and investing you know, as you've worked, you've had this advantage of time. That advantage of time has started to diminish some extent, but you also now have this advantage of more dollars, more dollars to save. And so just from a risk capacity standpoint, this is where You know, you like to see as you're maxing out your plans and your IRAs, and you're just you have this excess savings capacity. Remember that as prices go up and down, especially if you're you're looking at things like stocks and bonds, as prices go up and down, every contribution that you're making, even in a down market, is something that you're getting on sale at that point. You're still going to save these dollars. You still want to put them to productive use. It's just more of a how do you kind of reframe from an uh, emotional versus unemotional standpoint, like what these dollars are doing. Easy to say if you walked into a store and all of a sudden everything was a twenty percent sale immediately, you might be inclined to 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 buy one or two more things. You know, same idea here is you're just getting one or two more things when you're investing in stocks and bonds. And again, from a risk capacity standpoint, having the excess dollars to do it, it's huge. It's great.
0: Yeah. So your dollar cost averaging in, maybe you're buying a little bit at a sale now and those prices increase later. So you're not getting quite as great of a deal, but it's gonna average out to probably be probably be pretty good for you.
1: And Regina, I just heard some jargon there. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about dollar cost averaging on the cash flow side?
0: Yeah, you know, I thought I could sneak that past you with my my little explanation there. Basically what I was saying, if you buy into the market on sale at one point when the market's down, stocks are a little less expensive. Great. Maybe next time you make that investment because you're taking those regular recurring contributions out of your paycheck and going into your 401k, maybe they're a little bit more expensive the next time. And then the third time, they're somewhere in the middle. That's all going to average out, and hopefully that works out well for you. Of course, we can't promise anything, but uh, that's exactly what dollar cost averaging is. It's setting up your plan to have those contributions coming out, sticking with the plan, and uh, averaging those prices so that everything hopefully Turns out to look great in your portfolio.
1: Yeah, and and something that's interesting about the the concept, right? I mean, dollar cost averaging is just something that was proposes a way to start thinking about how these how money is going into your investment portfolio and is as a effective sort of tool of well, over time you can have some highs and some lows and they'll average out. You're always practicing dollar cost averaging. I mean, unless you're taking you know the exact right number of dollars at the first day you start working. And that is going to basically grow to exactly what you need at retirement. You're always going to be adding money, right? So over your lifetime, you're going to be dollar cost averaging. It's just that the idea of having more dollars, especially if you're in Gen X, right? And you're reaching your higher peak earning years is where you really need to hit, hit the sort of proverbial gas, I guess, as far as accelerating those savings and investments.
0: Yeah. It's just another way to do another thing that we love to say, and that's control what you can control. Make that plan, stick to it, and uh, Absolutely. cross your fingers.
1: Don't, don't have to hope that you have to call the stock exchange and ask them to go up. You just control the things you can.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And hopefully that builds a nice pool for you that you can then tap into during retirement. But back to uh, focusing a little bit more on risk. How does risk play into how these folks are contributing when they're in Generation X?
1: Well, no, that's a great point. Actually, when you think about dollar cost averaging and risk, like what does it actually mean? Well, I mean, the whole idea of buying at peaks and valleys at different times, it's, you know, in essence, a risk mitigation, right? It's, it's, you, you've limited sort of the exposure to, uh, one absolute price point. So if you're doing a monthly contribution into something or a per paycheck contribution into something, you're not taking on the risk that you buy something at a really high price that only declines in value. a year or two or however long later. But the key thing about the risk as it relates to dollar cost averaging is the risk you're seeing there is the short-term. It's all these short-term ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys. The long-term, getting over that 10 and 15-year window, and even if you're Gen X and you're thinking about a retirement that's approaching, and let's just say in that 10-year period or maybe a little longer, these short-term peaks and valleys, the risks of prices declining actually represent opportunities. I mean, that's the way you got to think about this as far as Making those purchases is that these these sort of on sale moments. They're the opportunities. They're not necessarily the actual risk. The actual risk is again that for some reason that decades down the road you have a lower price than what you purchase something at today, which is which is much more unlikely than in the short term.
0: Isn't the average stock market return somewhere around ten percent?
1: And we're gonna get to the kind of compliance issue of you know what are we quoting here for stock and bond returns and this and that. But let, let's just say yeah, high single digits, lo, low doubles as far as like long long term, 10, 15, 20-year average annual returns, yeah, you should be approaching and expecting that in time. And of
0: course, history doesn't always repeat itself, and we're not promising that it does. That's
1: right. There we go. We can always hope.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One more thing for our Gen Xers. This is a time since they are in their high earning years, maybe contributing quite a bit to their employer retirement plans, makes it really important to check in on risk to make sure that you're invested appropriately because you're having the larger dollar amounts going in. Can you speak a little bit to that?
1: As far as how you evaluate where things are at, yeah. I mean, I like to think about how you evaluate risk. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of ways to do it, but think about it in terms of ultimate need. At the end of the day, if you, if you're forecasting, trying to tell the future a little bit, the best we can do is work with the data that we have. If we're trying to look ahead to see, okay, where are the needs going to be? And what does it take to get there? What is it going to take? Like either how much you're putting in or how much return you're earning? Just looking at those two things relative to one another, where you're today, where you need to be. And using that as a barometer for how much exposure you should have to any one particular thing. But what I'll say is the the approach of saying, okay, well, if, if in 10 years I need, let's just say a million dollars. And I have 500000 a day. And so I'm halfway there and I'm just going to plug away and just keep saving so that I can get that next 500000 and just assume that it will never grow and never do anything. W- what you end up with is where you've lost the opportunity to potentially keep up with purchasing power and keep up with the kind of gross of costs of, of goods and services. And so it's not often enough to just say, "Okay, this is what I have now, and I would need to protect it because again, the risk that you end up seeing there is again that loss of, of being able to actually buy things so there are a lot of ways you, you'll see different surveys and tools and you can go through I think any any investment you know house or brokerage out there will give you a quick risk tolerance assessment. We use a tool called Risk which would allow you to understand this risk number on on a continuum a number between one and ninety nine and where does that relate to how you're in investing in your portfolio now. So there's just lots and lots of ways to evaluate it. But the the essence of it ultimately is where you're at today, where you need to be, like with that needs-based assessment that helps you guide you as far as like how much risk you should ultimately
0: take. Yeah. And that's, like you said, really needs-based. So as we get more into millennials, Gen Y, they have a little bit more time. So how can they maybe take on a little bit more risk because they have the benefit of time? even if they're maybe not quite as risky how does that play in for this generation
1: this is where the separation between short and long term i think is really important i think this is the the younger you are the more uh, focused you should be on this thing for the long term dollars for the 20 30 years away where the, these dollars are not going to be spent and we really want them to grow in some sort of like tax efficient vehicle uh, employer sponsored retirement plan iras like y- you name it because you have time Because you have this ability to wait on ups and downs, peaks and valleys, that's where you really start to focus on this longer term, the capacity is there to take on the higher end of the risk spectrum, the more aggressive things. But at the same time, you can't lose focus of your short-term needs, right? If you have a goal to buy a house in five years, well, you can't really invest that the same way as your 25-year goal. And so if you need to focus on this, you almost need to start to create more intentionally these buckets, these, these pools of money for different purposes. And so, yeah, like I, I think more the, the younger you are and the more in that phase of house, car, family, all of those things, you really need to focus a lot on, on that separation.
0: I feel like at this point it becomes a lot less on that stock bond breakdown and more on the goals, those time horizons for each specific goal. And then we get into percentages of stocks and bonds within each a little bit more and see how those kind of grow and mature as our millennials will go into um, the ages that Gen X is right now and then reach the, the years that baby boomers are in now. How does everything really morph for them? What have you seen as as people have grown older that have worked with you?
1: Well, I mean attitudes. As far as attitude towards risk, preference, tolerance, almost always it just happens. You get a little older, you start to see the finish line a little more clearly, and you start to think about risk as as this big scary thing. And you're only thinking of typically the risk of loss, not the risk of purchasing power. I see that a lot, and so purchasing power risk that exchange uh, between the two things, like making sure that you're mindful of that transition. That's the probably the the bigger shift is just recognizing that time is going to sort of take care of the element of your your attitude and your preference for risk. It's starting to to grasp and understand the difference between risk of loss and purchasing power risk. That is really the bigger overarching theme here. And so you, you'll notice that the younger you are, the the longer you think you have, which most do, from a saving standpoint, the the more apt you are to take those bigger sort of risk a loss positions or, or investments. And the closer you get to actually using it, it just happens that it's natural to think like maybe I shouldn't be subjecting myself to as much risk a loss, even though we know that's not the, the ultimate finish line. It's just the sort of the beginning of the last stage of the race.
0: Taking that into perspective, it doesn't mean that everyone in Gen Z should just be super, super risky because they have the benefit of time. Can you tell us a little bit about how somebody who maybe has a lower risk tolerance in Gen Z can still, you know, be a little bit more aggressive without feeling like they're being overstretched?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's coming back to that idea of the separation of or designation of different pools of money and what what it's being used for taking care of those shorter term goals first so if you're feeling like yeah stock market looks scary uh you know whatever it is real estate's eh, i don't know or or i mean you could just go down the list of various things you could invest in but start to think about why you're putting those dollars away what specifically is it for is it is it to have dollars for a home is it to pay for maybe a masters degree or you could just come down with all these uses And as you start to separate them and you start to sort of, uh, silo off those savings, sure, you can, you, yeah, something you need to have dollars within the next one, two, three years, you're not going to want to take a ton of risk. You're really going to want to be pretty close to the best with that. But as you start to open up and see, okay, well, now I don't need this money for 20, 25 years or longer. That's where you can take away that emotional aspect of, of not wanting to see the ups and downs, the peaks and valleys and just, out of sight, out of mind in that in that respect. And so that's another good way is to just simply like have one of those uh, sorts of portfolios, whether somebody's managing for you, whether you're managing yourself, where you're just like, it's out of sight, out of mind. It's growing for the long term. And let's not take a ton of time thinking about what did it do today or what's it going to do tomorrow.
0: And balance is super important here because someone in Gen Z might be recently graduated from college, have student loan debt, maybe doesn't have the capital right now to purchase a house and buying a house within the next couple of years because of the way the market's been looking, it might not be something that they're looking to do right now. And then the stock market, of course, has been kind of scary in addition to the housing market and interest rates being high. So being able to make those plans when you're this age or start to at least if you're in Gen Z so that you can reach the goals you want to achieve and protect the assets that you're going to need within the next few years while potentially growing some if you're holding off on some of those life goals. Jason, can you expand upon that a little bit more and explain where they might fall along the spectrum of risk being that they have kind of different risk pools almost?
1: I mean, well, if you think about risk capacity and risk preference, I mean, risk capacity for a longer term goal, the younger you are, it's pretty high. Capacity from a, I'm not touching this money in 20, 30 years, you've got a lot of it. Uh, your risk preference may be Non existent. Like you said, you could be faced with student loans. You need to make those payments. You may be seeing a housing market that's just a little too hot to want to make a purchase into. And so that risk preference might be down as, as you look at like what the stock market did in the last, uh, uh, last 12 months, whatever in 2022. So your balance as far as like what you need to do is go back to laying that foundation, having that emergency fund and that opportunities fund and having those pieces in place so that you're protected from the most basic financial calamity. And then with the surplus, with the excess, where are those dollars going to be the most productive for you? Sure, paying off student loans is, is very likely to, to help with, with future cash flow, but it maybe doesn't necessarily start any seeds for actually growing an investment portfolio, right? So you need to, to work between those two things and use effective strategies to live within your means and also save and invest for the future for a longer dated goal or, or objective.
0: Where it kind of all wraps together, where you're you're making a budget so you can make sure that you're making ends meet. You're also starting a plan for savings to mm-hmm. uh, set the foundation for your future. Always keep that emergency fund, no matter what. Also making sure that you know you can make rent next month. Um, it can be a lot. So, like I said, a little bit more where where budgeting comes into managing your own risks within your day to day cash flow.
1: Oh, the budget. Yes, that's right.
0: I had to sneak that in there, of course.
1: But no, I mean from today's takeaways for sure, just remember risk is everywhere. It is it is whether it's risk of loss or risk of future purchasing power decreasing. They are still both risks. There isn't a way to avoid inflation risk or investment risk universally. It's just it's not a thing that happens.
0: Yeah, and risk affects different generations differently. So Folks in different generations have to take different approaches to the same risks and really build in their own risk tolerance.
1: And finding that right level of risk that's there for you as far as like, what is your capacity versus your preference? And they may not be in line, but really recognizing that your capacity should be probably the greater driver of how much risk you take, like how, how your circumstances play out gives you a really good guideline, not necessarily the preference, which can be a little bit more emotional, of course.
0: That said, if you have an idea for a future podcast episode, or if you'd like to share feedback on today's episode, reach out to us at podcast at fpfoco.com. You'll also find the email in the show notes.
1: Thanks for listening today. We'll be back soon.
0: Jason Spessner and Regina Neenan are investment advisor representatives of Financial Planning Fort Collins, a registered investment advisor. The information in this podcast is provided for general educational and entertainment purposes only. It may not apply to you or your specific circumstances and should not be considered financial, investment, or tax advice.